Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.27, Alex Sepesa, the truly believing Alexandra Fyodorovna. Last time, we introduced Alex of Hesse, the unassuming German princess who would grow up to be the last Tsarina of Russia. We saw her grow up under the influence of her grandmother, Queen Victoria, after the premature death of her mother, and saw her grow ever closer to her cousin Nikki in the wake of her many visits to Russia to visit her sister. They hit it off immediately, but concerns over the fact that she'd have to convert to Russian orthodoxy threatened to end their relationship before it had really managed to get going. But she was eventually brought round, and they became engaged. When we left them, they were exchanging letters with each other, enjoying being young and in love. But real life would soon come crashing down on them like a ton of bricks. But before we get going, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon supporters that keep this show on the road. Since the last episode, we've had quite a few new supporters sign up. They are Cherry, Kate, Diane, Rachel, Emily, and Kat. Thanks, you guys. Your support is so appreciated. If you too would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Other than a brief, blissful visit from Nikki to Windsor in the summer of 1894, Alex didn't see her fiancé for many months following their engagement. While she spent her time in the UK and then in Germany, Nikki returned to Russia, first to attend his sister's wedding, and then to attend to his father, whose health was steadily worsening. Indeed, by the autumn, 
it seemed likely that Nicky would soon be taking his place on the throne. And this made a lot of people very worried. You see, Nicky had never really seemed especially zari. Indeed, the very day of his birth, the 6th of May, was considered to be a very unlucky day on which to be born. He was the eldest child of Tsar Alexander III and his wife Marie, the sister of Alexander of Denmark, the Princess of Wales. He would eventually be joined by two brothers and two sisters, but he was always the focus of attention, as one day he would be Tsar. One might have expected him to have grown up in the lap of luxury, but that wasn't his parents' way. They were very concerned that their children did not grow up to be soft, spoiled, rich kids. They grew up in camp beds, with only one hard pillow and a rough woolen blanket each. Their baths were cold, their food meagre, and their education strict. Nicky's father was an ultra-conservative, and so passed these views on to his son. His education emphasised the Romanov mantra of faith, czar, and fatherland. The Russian autocracy was the only way of keeping the empire safe that any democratic reform would set Russia slipping down a slippery slope towards revolution and disaster. This was further hammered home to the young Nicholas when he was 12 years old, when his grandfather, Alexander II, was assassinated. He was known as the Tsar Liberator, the great reforming ruler that emancipated the serfs and brought in a measure of political reform. For his travels, he had been the subject of no fewer than six assassination attempts, the last of which, in March 1881, was successful. That day, the young Nicky was preparing to go ice skating with his siblings, when two massive explosions shook the palace's windows. They didn't have to wait long to find out what happened, as soon his grandfather was brought in. His right leg had been blown off. His stomach had a hole in it. His face was littered with shrapnel. Blood was everywhere. This dark day scarred Nicholas forever, and taught him a very important lesson. If you ever compromise, if he ever tried to reason with the liberals, then you'd end up bleeding out on the palace floor, just like his grandfather. Despite his parents' best efforts, Nicholas ended up following a very different path to the one they wanted. He liked nice things, he liked to party, He loved drinking with his army buddies, and his parents were often awoken to find their son being carried home, passed out drunk. He would not get up until around noon, and had little interest in affairs of state. Instead, he would hang out with his mistress, a ballerina named Matilde Kshashinska. This is not perhaps a surprising path for a teenager in his position, but it was terrible preparation for a future czar. When he did turn up to the few meetings that he was allowed to attend, he sat there bored, desperately wishing them to end. This adds Nicky to the great list of disappointing sons that we have encountered in this story. There is a famous conversation that the Tsar Alexander III had with his chief minister, Sergei Vita, in 1893. Vita was keen to give Nicholas a job to get his teeth into, something that could give him practical experience, and he suggested to the Tsar that he be put in charge of the Trans-Siberian Railway Commission. The Tsar responded, What? Tell me, are you acquainted with the Tsarevich? How could your majesty think that I would not know the Tsarevich? But have you ever tried to discuss anything of consequence with him? 
No, your majesty. I have never had the pleasure of having such a conversation with the Tsarevich. Well, he is an absolute child. His opinions are utterly childish. How could he possibly preside over such a committee? Barely a year later, the boy who could not be trusted with a railway would be entrusted with the whole of the Russian Empire. By the autumn of 1894, it was clear to all that the Tsar was dying. Alexander III was an absolute bear of a man. Well over six foot tall, broad and as strong as an ox, he gave off the air of a man who would outlast everyone. But even the strongest among us can have their kidneys pack in, and by this time the once towering Tsar was weak and thin, ebbing away thanks to nephritis. He had made the journey to Corfu to try and recover his strength, but had only reached as far as the Crimea before it became plain that he could travel no further. His wife and eldest son were by his side, and Nikki hurriedly wrote to Alex, urging her to come to Crimea as quickly as she could. Ella and Sergei were dispatched to Darmstadt to pick her up, but things were so fraught around the Tsar that there was no time to arrange the imperial train to pick her up. Instead, the soon-to-be Tsarina of Russia arrived in her new country as a normal passenger. It would, though, be the last time she would ever be considered ordinary. Nikki met the train at Simferopol station and accompanied her on the four-hour drive to the Imperial Palace. All along the way, the carriage was stopped by villagers, offering her welcoming gifts of bread and salt, as well as fruit and flowers. It was a warm welcome, but one tinged, no doubt, with sorrow. She may have had an inauspicious entry into Russia, but that changed dramatically when they arrived at the palace. The Tsar had arranged a guard of honour, and had somehow mustered the energy to put on a full military dress uniform. It was the only way he had insisted to greet the future Tsarina of Russia. Alex knelt before the dying Tsar, and officially received his blessing to marry Nicholas. By contrast, over the next ten days... Alex must have felt like something of an afterthought amongst all the hustle, bustle and grief engulfing the palace. For Nikki and Alice, this was a time of sorrow, but also of great happiness. They were together at last, but at such a great price. Alex did her best to comfort her fiancé, but was also concerned that he wasn't asserting his authority. When the doctors came to report on the Tsar's condition, They went straight to the Empress, or his top courtiers, leaving Nicholas in the dark. Alex was the granddaughter of Queen Victoria. She never would have stood for this, and was concerned that Nicky was allowing himself to be rolled over. You can see her tenderness and thoughtfulness, but also her resolve in this matter, in this note that she wrote into Nicky's diary. Quote, Sweet child, pray to God. He will comfort you. Don't feel too low. Your Sonny is praying for you, and the beloved patient. Be firm and make the doctors come to you every day and tell you how they find him, so that you are always the first to know. Don't let others be put first and you left out. You are father's dear son and must be told all and asked about everything. Show your own mind, and don't let others forget who you are. This was the first time, but by no means the last, that she would exhort Nikki to be strong and firm. On the 20th of October, 1894, Tsar Alexander III died at the age of just 49. Although this moment cannot be too great of a surprise to Nikki, 
he was utterly overwhelmed. He had lost his father and received the great and premature burden of the imperial crown at the same time. One of his brothers-in-law, Sandro, recalled that, quote, the weight of this terrifying fact consumed him. Sobbing, he asked him, quote, Sandro, what am I going to do? What is going to happen to me? To Alex? To mother? To all of Russia? I am not prepared to be Tsar. I never wanted to be one. I know nothing of the business of ruling. I think many of us have felt that way when beginning a new job. But imagine getting that job thanks to your father dying. And imagine instead of whatever your job is, it involved the holding of the fates of hundreds of millions of your own people in your hands as the autocrat of the largest land empire in the world. Yeah, that's a lot of pressure. And Nicky wasn't wrong in thinking himself woefully unprepared. But at least he had Alex. He wrote to Queen Victoria, quote, Ten days have already passed since that terrible event happened. It seems to be a nightmare. I cannot yet believe that my deeply, passionately adored and beloved father has been taken away from us. Sweet, darling Alec's presence is such a comfort to me. I don't know how I would have stood it else. The one great comfort I've got in my utter misery is my darling Alec's deep love that I return to her fully. Now that Nikki was Tsar, Alex was keen to cement her place within the Romanov family by getting on with her official conversion to Russian Orthodoxy. The day after Alexander III's death, in what must have been a rather surreal ceremony given the circumstances, Alex was received into her new faith, and, as was custom, took a new Russian name. Officially, she was no longer Alex of Hesse and Byrhine. She was now the truly believing Grand Duchess Alexandra Fyodorovna. Nikki and Alex were both keen to also get married in the Crimea, and even got the approval of Nikki's mother. But his uncles, including Ella's husband Sergei, who held a lot of sway, talked the new Tsar around. Crimea was no place for the Emperor of Russia to get married. It had to be in St. Petersburg. A week after his death, Tsar Alexander III began his final journey back to the capital. Alex was joined by one of her aunts, the Princess of Wales, who had come to comfort her sister, the Dowager Empress. Princess Alexandra reported that, on the way to the port of Sevastopol, quote, the whole road was lined with thousands of weeping people, who fell on their knees and crossed themselves reverently as their beloved emperor was carried by them for the last time. From there, the party travelled slowly north by train, stopping in every major city en route, including for a huge parade in Moscow, before finally arriving in St. Petersburg. As one might expect for Russia in November, the weather was terrible. It took four hours to get from the station to the Cathedral of the Fortress St. Peter and St. Paul, amidst the bitter cold, heavy fog and a biting gale. There, Alexander's body lay in state, but unfortunately embalmers had done a very bad job, and so his body began to blacken and rot before everyone's eyes, producing a foul smell that must have made being one of the guard detail an absolute living hell. For three weeks, Nicky, Alex, and the rest of the royal family returned to the cathedral, once in the morning and once in the evening, to pay their respects. 
Part of the ritual involved kissing the decomposing man's lips, which must have been incredibly unpleasant. The funeral itself was one of those great family occasions for the extended Queen Victoria clan. Amongst those present were the kings of Greece, Denmark and Serbia, the Prince of Wales and his son, both future British kings, and Prince Henry of Prussia, representing the Kaiser. In all, 61 royals gathered in St. Petersburg, along with the entire Russian nobility and the senior officer corps of the army and navy. This meant that Nicky and Alex's time was filled with receptions, dinners and meetings with all these dignitaries. The new Tsar admitted to having to take regular walks in the palace gardens just to get a moment's peace. One might have expected everyone to wait a little after the funeral before holding the wedding ceremony for Nicky and Alex, but it was considered important to get the wedding sorted. This meant that, only a week after all the funeral rites had finished for Alexander, it was time for Alex's wedding day. It may have crossed the minds of some of those present that this rather mirrored her mother's situation. Princess Alice had married Louis of Hesse in the wake of the death of Prince Albert, with the royal court still in mourning, and it was the same for Alex. Everyone present knew the situation was unideal, and gamely did their utmost to make the best of it. The ceremony took place on the 26th of November. Removing their black mourning clothes, Alex and her soon-to-be mother-in-law were driven from Ella and Sergei's residence down Nevsky Prospect to the Winter Palace. The streets were crowded with well-wishers, braving the bitter cold to see their future empress, along with a lot of soldiers. You couldn't be too careful in these tense times. There, she was clothed in the same ceremonial bridal dress as her sister had been, finding it just as awkward, heavy and uncomfortable as Ella had all those years ago. Indeed, just putting it all on took over an hour. Yet, it was all worth it. One witness recalled, quote, Her appearance was positively magnificent as she stood there in her bridal array of silver cloth and old lace. Her unusual height helped her to bear the weight of the dress and set off its splendour in its best light. Her mouth quivered a little, and this relieved her habitual hard expression. That was the one defect of an otherwise perfectly beautiful face, the straight classical features of which reminded one of an antique Greek statue. The glow upon her cheeks only added to the loveliness of her countenance, and her eyes, modestly lowered, gave her whole figure a maidenly shyness that made it wonderfully attractive. Nikki was dressed in the red uniform of the Hussars, the ribbon of the Order of Hesse placed across his chest. Together, they led one of the greatest assemblies of European royals through the palace to the chapel. Prince George remarked that Alex, quote, looked quite lovely at the wedding. She went through it with so much modesty, but it was so graceful and dignified at the same time, she certainly made a most excellent impression. I do think that Nicky is a very lucky man to have got such a lovely and charming wife, and I must say I never saw two people more in love with each other or happier than they are. During the exchange of vows, while the Tsar stumbled over his lines and had to be regularly prompted by the Metropolitan, Alex was calm and steady. After a long ceremony, Alexandra graduated from the ranks of Grand Duchess to become Her Imperial Majesty, the Tsarina Alexandra Fyodorovna, Empress of all Russia. It had been a magnificent ceremony. Alex had played her part well, 
and those present saw her as a hit, but she couldn't fully escape the optics of the timing. Russia was an intensely superstitious place, and plenty were mentioning that it was very inauspicious for the new empress to come to the throne behind the coffin of her father-in-law. That was where a whole generation of Russian masses had first glimpsed Alex, solemnly walking, veiled all in black. And that is the image that stuck for many. Not the radiant bride, but the harbinger of death. So now that Alex was Empress, it's worth examining exactly what that role was and how much power and responsibility she was expected to wield. Though the position came with a title, it didn't come with any formal responsibility. In this, it differed little from most countries' position of consort. The Tsar was an all-powerful autocrat, and so being his wife came with a great deal of potential for influence. But that was not really the norm in Russian history. Alex's predecessors were mostly German, and mostly content with the role of leader of St. Petersburg society. They took the lead in fashion, they organised the best dinners and parties, and they stayed quiet when it came to political matters. Some were highly visible, some were more reclusive. Alex's predecessor, the now dowager Empress Marie, was an enthusiastic entertainer, and loved nothing more than to get dressed up in a dress covered in about 10 million diamonds and entertain at huge society events until the early hours. She, in other words, was the prototypical example of the perfect Russian empress. Visible, gregarious, and left the business of politics to her husband. That was what Russia had come to expect, and the model of behaviour to which Alex was supposed to conform and Alex had all the advantages that one might have wanted. She was young, beautiful, and the sister of the highly popular Grand Duchess Ella. Her foreignness was not, at this time, considered a disadvantage. As I said earlier, almost every Romanov empress had been German. The problem was that Alex was never comfortable in performing her public duties. She was shy and anxious, and struggled to hide her dislike of all the formal occasions that it was her duty to organise and attend. She came across as disdainful, as haughty and cold, and this meant that she was never able to win over St. Petersburg society. One lady of the court wrote simply that, quote, The new Tsarina is not friendly, and people commented on, quote, Her timidity and the exceedingly melancholy expression of her eyes. Now, this was not unique amongst wives of Russian Tsars. Her husband's grandfather, Alexander II, had also married a Hessian princess, a great-aunt of Alex's, and she too had been uncomfortable in performing her public roles. It was not a tremendous problem, then, for the Tsar to have an unpopular wife. At least not yet. Alex's early days as Empress were cramped and uncomfortable. The unexpected speed of her arrival had meant that her quarters were not ready for her in the Winter Palace, and so she was forced to move in with her mother-in-law, who herself was joined by her two youngest children. Alex's days were spent in lonely isolation, constantly waiting to spend what little time she could with her new husband. 
Her mother-in-law, while she was no longer the empress, retained much of her status, and since she stayed active within St. Petersburg life, completely overshadowed her daughter-in-law. In the words of one biographer that I have read, quote, Where Marie Fyodorovna sparkled and socialised, Alexandra glowered and withdrew. Marie and Alex did not have a great relationship. Marie didn't like Germans and possibly resented Alex for taking away her son while she was still grieving for her husband. This rift is best shown in the incident over the crown jewels. It was customary for the Dowager Empress to hand over the best of her jewels to her successor upon her taking the throne, but Marie refused to do so, only handing over her more minor pieces. She loved them. Why would she give them up to some jumped-up German? Alex complained to Nicky, asking her to speak to his mother, but Marie steadfastly refused to hand them over. Instead, though, of kicking up an even greater fuss, Alex came up with a plan. She informed her mother-in-law that she no longer cared for the jewels. She could keep them. Indeed, even if she gave them up for her for ceremonial occasions, she would refuse them, essentially going on a form of jewellery strike. Marie knew that this could kick off a scandal if she prevented the Empress of Russia from wearing the regalia of office on state occasions, and so hastily handed them over. The disdain and jealousy Marie held for Alex was so obvious that Marie's own mother, Queen Louise of Denmark, was forced to write to her to urge her to change her ways. Quote, For yours and Nikki's sake, start treating her like your own child, without fear, right away, pull her towards you, and then you will keep him and pull her towards you with love. God help you if you lose Nikki's trust and love. It will be the death of you. Alex was also cut off by language. At this time, Russia had two tongues. Russian, which was the language of the masses, and French, which was the language of the court. Alex spoke almost no Russian, and while she did speak French, she was too nervous to do so around the people of the court that did so with such obvious confidence. Thankfully, these domestic tensions were erased when, at the start of 1895, Nikki and Alex moved into the Winter Palace. This marked Alex's real entry into St. Petersburg society as empress, and it was quite the shock. She had grown up in Britain and Germany, reserved societies where quiet dignity was considered to be the highest virtue. By contrast, Russian society was like the bitchiest, most elite and most ostentatious high school you can imagine. Think mean girls, but everyone is dripping in diamonds. One of her ladies-in-waiting, Anna Vyubrova, wrote, quote, The Empress, coming from a small German court, where everyone at least tried to occupy themselves usefully, found the idle and listless atmosphere of Russia little to her taste. In her first enthusiasm of power, she thought to change things for a little for the better. One of her early projects was a society of handiwork, composed of ladies of the court in society circles, each of whom should make with her own hands three garments a year to be given to the poor. In this, you can see the legacy of her mother Alice, whose concern for the poor was legendary. But it seems that the ladies of St. Petersburg were not interested in Alex's altruism. Indeed, she complained that, quote, most Russian girls seem to have nothing in their heads but thoughts of officers. 
All of this only caused a further sense of isolation for Alex. She was only ever truly happy around her husband, and so treasured the time she spent with him above all else. But I wouldn't want you to think of Alex as a clingy doormat. She had ambitions and vision of her own. The rulership of Tsar Nicholas is best summed up by one of his chief ministers. He said that Nicky had, quote, an unshakable faith in the providential nature of his high office. His mission emanated from God. For his actions, he was responsible only to his conscience and to God. Responsible only to his conscience, his intuition, his instinct, to that incomprehensible thing which in our days is called the subconscious. Responsible to the elements that are not reason and at times are contrary to reason. Responsible to imponderables, to the mysticism that steadily increased its hold over him. Nicky seemed to be harking back to an even older model of Tsardom, one that harked back to the Middle Ages, but fusing early modern ideas of absolutism and modern state control. It was a potent mix. What democratic institutions that had survived the ultra-conservative rule of his father saw further erosion and containment of their power. In this, he had the full-throated support of Alex, who quickly set about reorganising his advisers replacing them with men she thought to be loyal to him and that were ideologically sound. She may have grown up with her mother's social values, but she fully adopted the values of autocratic mysticism that Nicky believed in. Indeed, she was seen as its strongest champion. There was a famous example of this in the first year of Nicholas's reign, when he made a speech denouncing the Zemstvo, a semi-democratic network of local authorities that had been inaugurated under the reign of Alexander II. These had no place under Nicholas's political philosophy, and his speech was so vehement that it caused great shock. Everyone at court knew that Alex was a major driver behind this speech, that she had encouraged her husband to make such a bold move, and this enraged liberals, including Nicky's former tutor, who exclaimed, quote, she knows nothing, but she thinks she knows everything, and above all else is pursued by the idea that the emperor does not assert himself sufficiently, that he has not given all she thinks he ought to receive. She is more autocratic than Peter the Great, and perhaps as cruel as Ivan the Terrible. Hers is a small mind that believes it harbours a great intelligence. Now that is pretty harsh and really gives Alex far more credit than she actually deserves. I think where the treaty gets it right in his analysis, though, is that Alex was driven by her frustration that Nicky allowed himself to be too easily rolled over and should assert himself more. She didn't make him into being such a true-believing autocrat. He was that already. She just wanted to make sure that he made his vision a reality. Of course, Nicky was still yet to undergo the final rite of becoming Tsar, coronation. He had taken the throne upon the death of his father, and had been governing the empire, in a manner of speaking, ever since. But the coronation was a vital, sacred event. It was the moment at which Nicholas would be formally anointed as God's chosen man to rule over Russia. It was a ceremony pregnant with piety, and thus did not take place in Russia's westernised capital of St. Petersburg, but in its religious centre, Moscow. For days, 
foreign guests and people from all over Russia poured into Moscow for the ceremony. Every spare room was filled with travellers. The bars and cafes were packed. Church bells pealed constantly, and choirs sang in the street the national anthem, God Save the Tsar, the song that you can currently hear in the background as I talk. The imperial family entered the city on the 25th of May, 1896, in the magnificent state parade. I've put some video footage in the show notes for you to watch. Hundreds of thousands lined the streets on a gorgeous early summer's day, watching a plethora of people walk by, all in their ceremonial or traditional dress. From the glinting uniforms, the guards' cavalry, the long red-coated and black-hatted Cossacks, the gold-braided uniforms of the Russian nobility, and the rich robes and vestments of the clergy, they must have made quite a sight. The star attraction, though, was the Tsar, who was atop a white charger, dressed in full military uniform, leading the rest of his family. Alex was in a gilded state carriage, pulled by eight white horses and dressed in a long white gown festooned with heavy jewels. Past the cheering crowds they all went, travelling to the Kremlin, where they stayed overnight before the ceremony itself the following day. Alex was nervous. Her coronation day was one that was choreographed to the last detail, and any mistakes that she made would be noticed and taken to be a bad omen for her husband's reign. Therefore, she and Nikki were up at dawn, practicing all of their moves, making sure that they knew all their lines and could hit all their marks. The coronation took place at the Dormition Cathedral, which was part of the Kremlin complex. Alex was dressed in silver, with a red ribbon running over her shoulder, an unusually simple pearl necklace around her neck, and behind her went a vast train supported by a team of attendants. And above her and Nikki was a great golden canopy, with plumes of ostrich feathers at each corner. The ceremony itself was an absolute marathon, taking close to five hours. Luckily, Alex was able to sit for most of it on what was called the Ivory Throne. This had been brought to Russia following the fall of Constantinople in the 5th century, and, as you might guess from the name, was an elaborately carved throne of solid ivory. I've put a photo in the show notes for you to have a look at. I won't go into the whole ceremony, as it would take forever, so I shall skip to the end, where Nicky, as was traditional, crowned himself, thus showing to everyone that his imperial power came not from men of politics or of the cloth, but from God himself. He then took it off and touched it to Alex's head, which signified that her power as Tsarina came not from the state, the church, or even from God, but from his behest alone. They then sat back down on their thrones and received the homage of their subjects. As with her wedding day, those present commented very favourably on Alex's beauty, that she very much looked the part, at least until you saw her expression. One witness compared her to Iphigenia, the daughter of the Trojan war leader Agamemnon, who was forced to sacrifice her to appease the gods, saying that to look on Alex was to see, quote, the face of a martyr walking with measured steps towards her funeral pyre. Another said, quote, Even at this supreme hour, no joy seemed to uplift her, not even pride. Aloof, enigmatic, she was all dignity, but she shed about her no warmth. It was almost a relief to tear one's gaze away from her. Despite these critiques, all agreed that the day had gone off splendidly, but it was about to be marred by tragedy. In the series on Ella, we discussed what has become known as the Kodinka tragedy. 
Grand Duke Sergei, the Tsar's uncle and Ella's husband, have been put in charge of organising a great peasant festival in a field outside Moscow. He had, though, done an appalling job, and the very small number of soldiers and police sent to keep control could not cope with the hundreds of thousands who turned up. What followed was a stampede and a crush that resulted in the deaths of well over a thousand people. Nikki and Alex were quickly on the scene as soon as they heard about the tragedy, and spent the whole day visiting the hospitals filled with the injured and the dying. Nikki promised to compensate all of those affected out of his own pocket, and ensured that all identified bodies would receive their own grave. Alex was determined that the night's festivities, a ball thrown by the French ambassador, should be cancelled out of respect for the victims. It would be unseemly to dance and chatter frivolously, while grave trenches were being dug only a few miles away. But the Tsar's uncles overruled her. To not attend the event would be an affront to Russia's most important ally. And all over a few dead peasants? The whole thing was the most surreal, sombre, depressing occasion one could imagine. Alex's eyes were noticeably red with tears, and though she went through it all, she could barely contain her emotion. She didn't want to be there. To be fair, that was the case for pretty much every party she ever attended. But this was different. She had a political brain. She knew what this looked like. And probably she had an inkling that she'd be the one to take the blame. And she was right. The people of Moscow didn't see a Tsarina that had encouraged her husband to try and make right the sins of his uncle. They'd seen the wounded, prayed for the souls of the dead. They saw a heartless German empress who danced, drank and hobnobbed while ordinary Russians suffered and died. The Khadinka tragedy was a terrible start to Nicholas's reign and considered to be an ill omen for things to come. But it was the Tsarina that was the subject of the worst insults. She became known as Nemka, the German bitch. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.